Welcome to Better Cast Saul, the officially unofficial podcast for Better Call Saul on AMC. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 2, titled Breathe. Uh, what did you think of this episode? Uh, it was a good episode of Breaking Bad. It had action involved. Uh, Breaking Bad. Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. Um, I it had I thought it had some decent action and in, in the like criminal sense of the word. It had some emotional action in the Howard and Kim scene. Uh, this first two episodes continues to feel more focused than almost anything I saw last episode or last season. Like everything seems like it's calculated to do things and move people into positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, you? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think that. Kim and Howard scene is just phenomenal. Um, I can't remember the last time I saw something that powerful on TV. Maybe it was Leftovers. Uh, that performance that that Ray Seahorn delivers is incredible. Uh, and then, yeah, the stuff with Gus in the end, the action is really good. Nacho is in deep. Uh, Jimmy, you know, it's it's confusing as to why Jimmy's doing what he's doing, but the thing that I got out of... Actually, the the... I got a lot of stuff out of it, but the major thing that I got out of listening to the Insider podcast is you're not really supposed to know. It's supposed to be very confusing to you because it's confusing to Jimmy himself. So, right, uh, yeah, I I really like this episode. Hey, before we get to the episode, I want to talk about uh, what's going on at BaldMove.com here. Uh, Don't forget, if you are a club member, you have access to the Instant Talk podcast. That's like a live uh, call, not call-in, I guess chat-in show that we do with our fellow club members uh, after each episode of Breaking Bad. Uh, So around 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on Monday evenings, we take to the mics and the cameras, and we do the Instant Take, and then we do the Instant Talk. It's pretty cool. Uh, Got a lot of good participation this week, so check it out. Uh, we're also continuing our summer rewatch of Game of Thrones, getting into the thick of season three. Uh, that's a lot of fun. We're also doing Sharp Objects, which is an HBO series uh, that is, uh, if I have to pitch it, I'd say it's it's a lot like True Detective, only Matthew McConaughey is a woman who cuts himself. Yeah. And maybe slightly less psychosphere and more mm. narcissism. Uh, but I'm having a lot of fun with that. We also had a first round uh, bald movie. Last week, Black Klansman, uh, we released a free review for everyone. It's not so much a review as it is a, a rant, uh, a, a reaction to the themes and, and uh, topics that the movies dis- uh, discuss. Again, whether uh, if you're a club member or not, you can check that out. Also, uh, every 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday and Thursday, we're doing stuff on Twitch TV. And I say stuff because we are going to try to move away from video game coverage uh, and just playing around in that, and we're going to do, like, live watch style stuff. Uh, Jim is going to curate the Thursday uh, Twitch. I'm going to do the Tuesday Twitch. We will watch a movie or a television show or something, have some fun with it, and then maybe play a, a little bit of video games after that. But if you've never seen a live watch, because that's usually stuff that we only do for the club, go to twitch.tv slash baldmove, 4 p.m., uh, the other thing is, if you can't watch it live, it stays archived on Twitch for up to two weeks. So go to baldmove.com. Or I'm sorry. Go to twitch.tv slash baldmove, and you can click on, like, the little video archive, and you can see, like, the last two weeks of our history. So if you miss it, you don't have to miss out. You can you can check our replays there. All right, let's get into the recap. We start with Gus sending his personal doctor into the hospital along with Victor to check on Hector's status. Uh, He's no longer in a coma, but the doctor can't say whether he'll recover enough to be aware of his surroundings, which, to Gus, is unacceptable. The doctor says 
you know, you could involve better doctors, maybe ones from Johns Hopkins, but ultimately he thinks Hector is getting what he deserves, and Gus says that only Gus gets to decide what Hector deserves. No one else. Yeah, interesting. Um, Did you feel like they were teasing us with this this opening a little bit with all the medical equipment. I mean, once you get to Hector, you're like, Oh, of course Hector, but there's been this like, Oh, is Chuck dead? Or did he survive somehow? Kind of thing. Uh, no, it, because it should have been put to rest with the coroner truck, right? Right. <laughs> the coroner does not take you to the hospital. Right. If you're still alive. Right. No man is like, his face is burnt off and they weren't able to match his <laughs> dental records. I don't know. He came no, back after the fact. I, within seconds of seeing the medical equipment, I realized it'd have to be Hector. So yeah. like, I can't, <laughs> And I'm not, I guess I never saw the conspiracy theory about Chuck still being alive. So, oh, I mean, it was it was everywhere. Was it everywhere? Not not this week, but hmm. all oh, over. last last yeah. season. Um, I'm sure there's still some holdouts for Chuck. Well, uh, there's no uh, hashtag Chuck Strong on this podcast. Uh, no. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that was the Villigan having fun with uh, everybody. But I felt like you know, um, I mean. It is interesting how stately these episodes are paced. Mm-hmm. Like, they really take their goddamn time uh, to... Um, and, you know, even though I said that these episodes are all more focused, like, I can see this getting on people's nerves. It got on my nerves last year because it was this stately pace that also seemed to meander. It's like, well, you can meander or you can... You can, mea- you, you can meander but kind of, like, be brisk and entertaining about it or you can... Uh, you, you, you can uh what was I've, I've 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 lost my analogy here but what i'm saying is um like you know just pouring over all the medical stuff uh the long introduction we got to barry and his uh friend with or his kid with the bicycle problem mm-hmm. um you know nacho watching nacho's father roll up to the shop and take two minutes to get his shit together and get into it like these are very confident, interesting choices the filmmakers make, but um, it does, I feel like, sometimes open them up to, like, if, if there's not anything going on, I feel like this show's fans are quicker than most to turn and be like, hmm. what the hell, nothing's going on. I think it's kind of a product of Breaking Bad, you know? They've, they've built a fandom here that's right. used to a lot of action, right. used to a lot of plot movement, mm-hmm. uh, and I think... You know, that's one of its strengths, and Better Call Saul carries that over. But right. you're right, they they do, every once in a while, I guess, push that envelope a little too far uh, yeah. with the with the stately pacing in Better Call Saul. Uh, we, we see, I guess, for the first time, but we already know who he is because we've seen him later in the series. It's Gus's doctor, Barry right. Goodman. Right. Uh, he's, you know, the guy who helps him out in New Mexico later on. Uh, apparently, he's on the crew already, so... That's a trusted doctor right there. Uh, wait, is this his, for real? His name's Barry Goodman. I think it's the, his name is Barry Goodman. Yeah, I didn't think so because Barry Goodman's the fictitious doctor behind the Madrigal elo- Electromotive stuff. He actually sent us in some feedback this week, right? But I think he took his name from did this, he? this guy? Or, I thought that yeah. was ah, like he had started that before like the Mad the the, 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 the like that's because that's late be. season four, right? I don't know. That's what I saw on IMDb. So that's really what I'm going with. yeah. Okay, interesting. And IMDb can notoriously be right. wrong about things. Barry Goodman so. might have edited the, the, he the yeah, to, he to submitted it in there and and uh, put it in as Barry Goodman. But that's, he might have. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, this is a uh, you know one of the you know kind of ca- callback cameos to 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 uh, Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. All right, let's move on to Kim. She wakes up to the sounds of Jimmy getting ready to begin his first day of job hunting. 
Jimmy's acting like nothing is wrong, which Kim suspects is all an act, but doesn't think right now is the time to press the issue. So she plays along with it. Uh, she's surprised when Jimmy says he's not going to some meeting that we don't know about that's been set up with Howard. Uh, we find out later what that is. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Jimmy is... Because I, I, at first I thought the, the theme of the scene was that Jimmy was so distracted that he's being a dick. Like he's firing up the juicer at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh-huh. There's a little weird lighting there, but it just he's up at the crack ass at dawn, and I guess that's as, as good of an alarm clock as any. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to see Kim try to encourage because, like, I feel like their relationship thus far has been her kind of like pushing him to do things, um, and like succeed and all that stuff. And now, um, I guess with the epiphany of the car crash and the fact that you know his brother just burnt up, burnt alive, um, telling him to back off, uh, is is what she's trying to do. But like, I don't. I just I still don't get Jimmy. I don't think you're supposed to. You're not. He's yeah. all over the fucking place. Like he seems to be pushing away anything good in his life. Mm-hmm. He's um, self-destructive, certainly. Job offers, a supportive girlfriend, all these, um, you know, professional support. Like when the these lawyers were coming to expl- sympathy, he was very kind of like you know wrote and by the numbers. It's it's weird, but like you know. I've been seen enough seasons of television wrapped around the central mystery to know that I think Jimmy's emotional state is kind of the central mystery of this season mm-hmm. because there's really not much else. Like the Gus stuff is pure mechanic plot mechanics. The Mike stuff is pure plot mechanics. Like the real like what the hell is going to happen is is all with Jimmy and his his mental state. Yeah, and I think Kim is just kind of feeling around for the tack that she needs to take on this. Yeah. You know, she she's giving him space she's trying not to unload you know whatever feelings she has on him uh-huh. letting him kind of lead this conversation this dance that they're doing around chuck's death which i think is probably right at right. this moment like just give them the space they need to process it right uh-huh and you know jimmy's gonna self-destruct in the meantime but uh that's entertaining to watch at the very least um I did think that there's some little great, like, little notes in their performances. Like, there's this slight hesitation and sigh between her saying, you know you can take some time off and no one will judge you. And he kind of, like, pauses and looks a little pensive or thoughtful and sighs and goes, but why, you know, back to his why wait. Like, giving you the idea that there's something there. And then, like, Kim's very thoughtful look when he she finds out that he's blowing off the meeting with Howard, which we turn out. Turns out later to be the kind of like probate proceedings for court for for uh, Chuck's you know estate and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that they're doing those little things to show that there are little cracks, there are some doubts, there are these people probably have more to say about it. But I don't know. I you know that's this is something that's gone back with Kim and Jimmy for a long time. Ever since they started dating. Like the honesty has just completely gone off the window. Neither one of them can like say what they perceive the other to be the wrong thing to do, which is toxic as hell in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, and that manifests later on in this episode uh, more pointedly. Uh, so we go to Nacho's father arriving at work, where Nacho's waiting to tell him that he's taking care of the Hector problem. That's all, all over and done with. And his father won't talk to him, makes him take the the money that he would have paid to Hector. And then finally ask Nacho uh, when he's getting out. Nacho says he's working on it. Yeah, I mean, this is a very sad scene. And mm-hmm. uh, 
the pain that's on Nacho's father's face because like he doesn't like anything about this. He doesn't like the fact that he got his, you know, business that you can imagine he's busted his ass to build and hopefully the wanted to turn over to his sons one day. It's got turned into this fucking black market laundry operation. He doesn't mm-hmm. like the fact that his son's involved. He doesn't like the fact that he's worked very hard to be honest. Uh, and now he's touched dirty money. He doesn't like that he's having to not speak to his son, but he, he like, I, I, I don't know what, I, I, I don't, I, 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 like, I'm, I was studying the whole thing as, like, the, you know, we see his father's face, Nacho doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there with this, like, just, like, just really pained expression on his face, and I was actually surprised when Nacho finally grabbed the dirty money and headed out the door that he turned and said, you know, and, yeah. and what have, you know, and what have you, my son, are you, are you, when is it over for you? Mm-hmm. And Nacho saying, I'm working on it, is super sad because by the end of the episode, we know he is fundamentally trapped. And, and I think like, there's a tinge of that knowledge in his father, right? That right. these things don't just go away. Right. As much as you may want them to, as much as you think you've right. got it under control, these things come back and haunt you. Yeah. And, and that's on his father's face, too. Um, it's it's funny because like I, I felt like Nacho thought he had a lot of agency. Like, hey, if I am good, if I'm smart and clever and bold enough... Mm-hmm. I can save my family and get out of this situation. And in doing so now, like, he's completely screwed because, like, for the first time, like, yeah, um, you know, Don Hector could have killed him at any time. Tuco could have killed him at any time. But, you know, he, he still had options as long as he kept them happy and on the right side of their their bad temper, he was going to be okay. Now his fate is completely out of his hands. Mm-hmm. Um and that's really sad. And I wonder, I wonder where the relationship with her, him and his dad are going to go from here. I don't. I, don't I mean, know. speaking of people that seem unlikely to make it out of the season or out of the series, rather, Nacho is definitely one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Because if he made a successful transition to the kinder, gentler Gus, which um, there's a lot of, uh, I don't, there's a lot of commentary about like Gus and his management technique and how it contrasts to Breaking Bad. I kind of want to save that for later in the episode, but I want to say kinder, gentler Gus, but this is not necessarily kinder, gentler Gus. I'm I'm starting to think that we got the wrong idea about Gus through Breaking Bad. He wasn't a patient, nice criminal who was driven (laughs) over the edge by fucking Walter White. He was just trying to present a face to manipulate Walter. But see here, I'm Hmm. I'm getting, I'm stepping on my topic. Could be. We'll I want to wait until he bags the dude up before we talk about it. Okay. Uh, so we go to Jimmy's first interview of the day. It goes pretty well. Uh, he impresses the owner of Neff Copiers with his knowledge of copiers and his willingness to do whatever it takes to sell. Uh, they tell him they'll be in touch, but Jimmy won't take no for an answer. So he goes back into the office, and he talks them into hiring him on the spot. However, once they do, he calls them suckers for being so easily convinced and then turns down the job. Then he goes to the parking lot and sets up his next interview in what is... A extremely confusing turn of events here. Uh, I I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. I came up with some stuff in the instant take about like what may be happening. We should probably repeat most of this stuff in brief from the instant take because I've 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 gotten that not everyone listens to it. Obviously, yeah. Um, so what are because I've got a a novel theory that I haven't seen anybody else discuss. Okay. Um, what are what what are some of the things we're thinking are going on here in his head? Uh, I mean there. It could be it could be guilt, right? It could be the guilt of conning his brother into doing this thing gave, you know, resulted in really bad consequences. 
uh does he feel like that's he's setting that same thing up here and so he's you know pointing that out by pointing that out to them he's pointing it out to himself and then you know throwing throwing that away maybe i don't know it doesn't it doesn't feel very convincing to me i I thought that like in an instant take i mentioned that maybe he's trying to harden himself to do the hummel figurine heist uh like you know um Mm. But that doesn't make sense either because, like, when I was watching this uh, subsequent times, I was really paying attention to his face throughout. Uh, and when he gives that speech, and the the boy, the 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 two brothers that run the copy uh, co- copy machine office, whatever the fuck they are, uh, sales sales office, they're like conferring. Like he turns around, and it does seem like he's genuinely pleased that he was able to like you know get this this leg up on the competition and this you know opportunity cost and the whole kachunk kachunk healthy beat. Like he was very pleased with himself, but then like over the course of five seconds, like that that cream on his face curdled uh and now he comes back with this you know you don't know me there's no reference due diligence i wondered if he's actually subconsciously channeling chuck like chuck is over (laughs) his shoulder and saying oh here's slipping jimmy again he's trying to jump you know trying to cut corners and jump lines and you know not waiting for due process and, and tricking people because you are the guy that would piss in their coffee pot, and you are the guy who would—I don't know—all the crazy shit he did at the law firm. Mm-hmm. You know, would he show up without feet, socks? Showed up without feet. Showed up without <laughs> showed up without shoes and socks on. He smashed some dude's guitar, Ed Begley Jr.'s guitar. I don't know what all he did, but he did a bunch of heinous shit. Mm-hmm. And he I, took I feel a like real nasty shit in the bathroom, uh, among other things. Yeah. I just wonder if that's th- th- this. This is an outburst of what what Chuck would say. Mm-hmm. Um, that like he's it's like the telltale burn it's like the telltale smelling of the burning chuck or something that he can't get out of his mind hmm. um that's Could the be. that's that's the only thing you know because again i everything it, it this definitely wasn't a plan this definitely wasn't something he was trying to like like through a curveball after he saw the humble figure it's got to be something deeper more psychological and it's got to be a response to him yeah essentially strong arming or conning them mm-hmm. um but yeah, we got a I mean, lot of feedback. The other option, does he just not want to work for people who are so easily suckered? Like, is he done working for suckers? <laughs> How many suckers have he, has he worked for? I don't know. Howard feels like a sucker in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's it. The whole I feel sorry for me. Maybe that's the other thing is he's... He has had a steady stream of pity from, like, Howard and these well-wishers and even Kim and being able to spit out, I feel sorry, like, pitying some other person for their whatever imagined situation they're in. Maybe that makes him feel better, too. I mean, the weird thing is he sets up that next interview. That's the real curveball for me is he goes right back at it, and I don't understand why, you know, if this is his response to the first one, why? Well, I mean, because, like, when he... I think I might have an answer to that because I I rewound that a lot. When he goes out and he starts calling Ellen and sets up the meeting, like, there is a look of, like, God damn it, I fucking blew that. Like, why did I do that? (laughs) Uh So, like, okay, I'm going to get back up on the horse and try it again. Um, But, yeah, the guy just is is swinging from, like, Mm -hmm. one wild extreme to another and, like, second-guessing and judging himself all the while. I don't know. Yeah. There were a couple of... uh interesting details in this scene like this coffee sh- this coffee shop copy shop being under an overpass 
at least I think so, or it's a parking garage or something. It's just so pathetic, right? right. Like this is where a copy sales shop belongs. Right. It's like, uh, yeah, and it's. I I thought that they. I thought I was surprised at how nice the inside of the coffee shop was because. Mm-hmm. Like, when he was walking up and it's under the overpass or whatever, I'm just thinking, like, this is such a... Yeah. You know, that's one of the things I promised myself, like, because, t- like, I had f- realized I'd worked in a sequence of, like, places where the owners just made, like, just barely gave you the space to, like, work, but it had shitty lighting, shitty carpeting, the, the everything, the, the paint needed to work. Like, I got tired of working in dumps, is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah. Like it kind of like if if like uh, you know like why do I gotta fucking wear khakis and polos to a place that looks like a shithole? Uh, and I kind of thought because I was like, man, I've been to these companies before, and I was really surprised at how tastefully appointed the inside was. So maybe this is like the other side where the guys are like completely delusional about how spiffy they need to be, or hey, we got a really great deal at this complete shit place that no one's ever going to get any natural sunlight right. in, so let's go for broke with the mahogany on the inside. And <laughs> I just something ridiculous about having a showroom for copiers where they're actually rotating on platforms and they're tastefully <laughs> right. litted. And, uh-huh. and, and, you know, Jimmy's just playing into that. Like, oh, these guys fucking love these machines. I'm going mm-hmm. to use what little information I know about it to completely feed into that. But... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe he... It, it is an interesting detail that this looked like some, like, giant asshole place to work, but I, I kind of felt like the guys were... I felt like Jimmy might kick himself not taking that job uh, yeah. af- after everything was said I, and done. I think he'd be good at it, for sure. Yeah, the guy seemed like he could sell the hell out of copy machines. Absolutely. Because he's not selling the copy machine, right? He's right. selling the... the the idea well running business right yeah. just like he sold himself as you know give me jimmy He's selling the, the sizzle he, he, yeah he know he knows exactly how to package that stuff up and market it yeah uh and the other one when when you think of an animal an analogy for an animal that latches onto you and does not let go what is your first instinct oh gila monster of course <laughs> obviously it's a pitbull why i don't i guess because they're in the desert it's new mexico right? he's is more it... familiar with the gila monsters than he is isn't with that pitbull. like the state lizard of new mexico because new mexico is the <laughs> kind of state that know. would have a state lizard sure that sounds right um plus like i thought that's also a thing about gila monsters is they are kind of like tenacious and they have like a venom gland in their lower jaw that they have to like work into you like it's not like an bite and injection it's almost like they're just kind of like mauling or macerating your flesh to get it in there i Uh, I don't know so maybe maybe he's just uh doing local flavor here yeah i thought it was a funny detail Uh, all right so we move on to mike watching kaylee when he gets called to set up a meeting with lydia during the meeting lydia tells mike that his actions are raising the risk in their operation Mike, unfortunately, thinks they're having the exact opposite effect, and they're at a standstill, so she warns him not to lose Gus's respect. I think she needs, is, uh, like, after seeing this whole episode, I think she's the one who needs to worry about it. Yeah, he was very short with her on that phone call. Yeah, and, like, we're going to get there in a minute, but, like, I can't believe how fucking tone deaf and self-important Lydia was, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, but I feel like my, I don't know, I... I there's something we're supposed to know about the fact that Lydia r- rented out a room that could seat a hundred people for this very, very perfunctory meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no Stevia in sight. Uh, I, I, what, what are, what are they trying to tell us here? Like this kind of extravagant wastefulness that she has with company resources or I guess, or maybe it's just that, a place like this has like logs of their meetings and that this mm. is a weird, but 
I don't know. I, I wasn't quite sure because Mike walks in and he looks at that big, you know, statue in the middle right. of the thing, and he he kind of. Hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, one of those. And he's like going down these giant hallways and these big yeah. fountains, but there's something like... You're right, there's something there. Lydia is this weirdly fastidious person sweating details that concern her, but she somehow doesn't see the... I mean, I, I guess that tracks because there's the type... I mean, there's the type of detail-oriented person that like you point out other details and they get absorbed in there and there's the type of detail-oriented people that like only have like the narrow tunnel vision for the shit that's important to them and then they get annoyed at other people like you know being detail-oriented about things that they consider not mattering but uh-huh. it's oh maybe it's like uh she's really disliking the things she sees in mike that remind her of herself i don't know it's like hmm. fucking a lot of weird psychology on display in this episode all right, we go back to the hospital where Hector's staying. Thanks to a grant coming through, a doctor from Johns Hopkins shows up in Hector's room and takes over his treatment. Uh, the doctor tells everyone in the room, which includes the cousins, Ponytail, and Nacho, uh, that they need to stimulate Hector's brain by talking to him. And when she leaves the room, Nacho tells Hector that no one will mess with the Salamancas, and when he gets past this, he'll be stronger than ever. Yeah, I like how they really, the beeping of the you know heart monitor got louder and louder mm-hmm. in that final few seconds till it's like almost deafening yeah. the show like you know like what a weird kafka-esque experience it must be to be participating in the physical rehab that might lead to your family being back in the hot water yeah no it's it they do a couple of i think maybe three like kind of zoom ins on nacho throughout this mm-hmm. episode um, mm-hmm. slow zooms mm-hmm. and this is maybe not the most effective one, but it's a good one. Uh, just showing like Nacho's very, very worried about what's going on here. Right. Right. Uh, also, I, I think it's implied here that Gus is the one who gave the grant to the hospital in order to get this doctor from Johns Hopkins in. Right. Cause Johns Hopkins is specifically mentioned by the, his personal doctor in the beginning. Um, and we know that, you know, Gus has a history of giving grants to different hospitals, a lot yeah. of charitable work. I don't think they're ever going to spell it out, but the fact, yeah. and also the fact that Gus is reviewing detailed medical files of Hector's later on, I think yeah. that you're, the implication is not only is this doctor provided on grant, but also she might actually just be feeding them this information. Mm-hmm. Um, Could be. Because otherwise, I mean, I guess like they'd have to go in and steal that all this freaking time. That seems like very risky. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, for like a, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess we know this about Gus that he does occasionally go all in and take huge unnecessary risks to proceed to to, to keep this vendetta going against the Salamancas mm-hmm. uh, and and the the Eladios of the world. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's there's a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to do like like I, I saw some people saying try to like make some kind of inference about how the cousins are treating the one doctor versus the other or but i i what did you make like i didn't make anything of the cousins like you know listening to this doctor and and all that like i think they were fine with the other doctor that's just how they are yeah the other doctor was just a lot more creeped out and scared by it because a i think the johns hopkins doctor is in the pocket of gus so she's probably familiar with what she's getting into and b uh you know, this guy had spent a lot more time with the cousins glowering over him saying nothing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sure, there's a language barrier there and all that kind of stuff, too. But, like, 
they're just scary guys and you got to question what's going to happen to that doctor when hector ends up <laughs> the way he ends up right you know is she yeah. going to will she be blamed right right so i don't know or will it, she be a hero for you know bringing him back doing doing getting what? anything out of yeah. it right right uh we'll see we'll see hey want to do a shameless plug uh yeah. because in between these scenes and the next there's a commercial and one of the things on the national televised thing was a sharp objects commercial the hbo miniseries we are covering every tuesday uh on the bald movie tv podcast uh i think a lot of people That's would true. enjoy it and just want to slip that in there all right because i know everyone just fast forwards through the housekeeping so. nicely done tricked you it was it was smooth Butter yeah. smooth. Nobody would have would have. If you hit your thirty that. seconds skip, you're into the next scene. Now you go back a <laughs> fifteen seconds. Oh, we're in the middle of the stealth <laughs> ad again. So <laughs> get you trapped like Nacho in my web. <laughs> All right, Lydia calls Gus to tell him that Mike isn't backing down and she doesn't want to have to deal with all of these disruptions that he's causing. So Gus suggests she just give him a badge, uh, and then he goes inside his restaurant where he gets an update on Hector's health. There's no change. Gus instructs his goon to have Victor meet with him. Uh, his goon being uh, Tyrus. I, yeah, it's funny because I couldn't remember his real name. I, I remember we called him Tuvok because he looks so much <laughs> like Tuvok from Star Trek Voyager. Uh, his name's uh, actually Tyrus. Like it's close. Uh, yeah, like it's 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 within squinting uh, squinting distance. Uh-huh. Uh The the balls on Lydia to sit here and say, "Well, I got to worry about these details and this detail and this is the kind this, this is I don't want to spend this isn't something I want to spend my time worrying about." To fucking Gus. Isn't that isn't that your job? Isn't yeah, that your but job now to that, protect but, this operation. But now you're bringing shit that I don't want to worry about to that me. Too, yeah. Stuff that's easily solvable. Yeah. Um, but it does cuz that was the one thing I was wor- I was wondering about like when Mike met Lydia whether, you know, Gus would back the longtime collaborator or the brash new upstart. It seems like Mike has his full full trust. Yeah, um, well, I mean Mike is much or, more careful. Yeah, or or like maybe the Gus is just distracted and he doesn't like you know if someone called about the chicken batter recipe mm-hmm. at this moment he'd have told them be like you know fuck off too. Yeah, because clearly his full attention is being taken by this by this Hector problem. Yeah, that's I mean, how do you know Gus is stressed? His finger twitches, and we mm. see that in this scene, right? Yep. That's yep. that's the telltale sign. Yep. So what I what I wonder is because because we see the scene of uh and it's maddening because we see the scene over Gus's shoulder and he's pouring over these medical records and you can't see anything because they're out of focus. <laughs> I took that to to mean Gus has no fucking idea what he's looking at. <laughs> oh, I just think that like the the Villigan is like I don't you can really see his wanna... face twisting. It's like 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 if these I don't I don't want to come up with like medical records and you know whatever and then they go to and but and they they have this pantomime of him seeing something in the records. I thought okay when, not, not not from the behind but when they come yeah, yeah. back and there's uh-huh. like the sun in your face and you got the jj abrams lens flares going uh and then he says uh tyrus is like do you want me to go back to hospitals no call victor and have him meet us this scene right here he hatches the five versus six plan yeah why like is he I, I I don't know what Gus's long term plan is other than the demise of the Salamanca uh clan. I mean I feel like it's while Gus or while Hector is out of commission, start putting pressure on his operation. You know, push them down a little bit. See how far he can push them before they push back. Yeah. And the you know, the verdict is he can't push them at all. Mm-hmm. He has to 
resort to killing them, mm-hmm. which is, in my my opinion, not pushing them. That's starting a war. But on the other it's hand... It's starting the very war that, you know, he may or may not want. It's like, does he have the capability to direct the DEA in Juan Bolsa's direction? Of course he does. We've seen right. it happen, right? Right. Uh, he's he's going to get, you know, Juan and Hector under the microscope while somehow avoiding it himself. So this must be part of that plan. So, so my theory is kind of related. I think that, you know, he's talking about, you know, bringing the chaos and bringing the La Dea. Yeah. And he sees an opportunity now that he has Nacho in, in custody and, is, and he's, he owns him now to like, okay, I'm going to kill Ponytail. Now I got the one guy. I can have this guy say whatever. I can have this guy uh-huh. say, because they, studi- they also mentioned in the previous scene that there is a gang that tried to move in on them. So Gus could tell Nacho, like, hey, you got your six keys and you're heading back and you get jumped by this as retaliation for you showing muscle. Mm-hmm. Now he's using the Salamanca organization to mop up all of the other rival gangs in Albuquerque while he is going to co-opt the DEA with fishing trips and... Right fun runs and all the other bullshit so he's gonna like eliminate all the competition consolidate his power within the dea using them as almost like a shield operating in plain sight i Mm -hmm. think that's what he's doing and i think that's what i will see next next week that notch is going to have some horseshit story about a rival gang jumping him because what else is he going to say oh yeah you know uh fucking Gus bumped us off and tried to co-opt me. Like, no, that's not going to fly. I'm trying to imagine how this plays out because we know the inevitable conclusion of it. We right. know that they don't ever get wise to Gus. You know, right. the, the whatever happens between Hector and Gus right. remains under the table. Um, and, and But simmering at all times. Simmering, because, absolutely. Yeah. But it never breaks out into, you know, full-scale war. And he always right. has the favor of Don Eladio right. right up to the very end. So, like... I don't know how how this is all going to play out because yeah. Nacho can't really be found out in my opinion because that would lead right. almost immediately right back to Gus. Right. And Hector apparently doesn't know that Gus is actively working against him in Breaking Bad. So I think he suspects though. There's always like intimations that yeah, like him can't... and the cousins like cause, like and they. I mean, it's not. Sometime between now and Breaking Bad, Gus's position materially improves because he's just yeah. kind of like the mule right now. But by the time of Breaking Bad, uh, he's actually able to cancel Salamanca operations, mm-hmm. like call off these like murderous uh, cousins that are trying to get revenge. He can just with a phone call in that. I think it has to do with the switch from are they are they pushing cocaine right now? I think that's... From coke to meth. Yeah, yeah. Because the meth is much more profitable, right? Right. And, and it can be... Plus it's you know, sourced domestically within, rather yeah. than... Yeah, so yeah, the yeah. risk is far lower. He's he's the right. mic of their operation. But he has to degrade the Salamanca's operation to probably even get that yeah. to, you know, but to, to, to get, to get the... Because the, um, is it... Is, is Eladio a Salamanca too? I don't think Because Eladio is so. his fir- first name, isn't it? Maybe they don't, Don. It's Maybe. not Don Salamanca. It's right. Don Hector. You know. Yeah. Um, I, I actually don't know what Eladio's. It's weird because like aren't all the Dons in like uh, the Italian mafia the last name? Like it's not Don Vito. It's Don right. Corleone. Yeah. Like uh, so, it's like a weird inverse. The boss of, that. of the family. Right? Yeah. Is right. So like I've always wondered that. Like the Salamanca are like his. 
you know, capos of, and he's got probably several of them. Like they're the ones that run New Mexico, and he probably got one in California, and yeah. he's got one south of the border. Like I, I don't know how the org, and we never really question. find no, out. I'm gonna have to look that up because because Gus essentially rolls the whole thing up, and they're never <laughs> seen again. Right. So right. Uh, okay, let's move on to Kim showing up at the meeting where Howard is executing Chuck's will. Um, Rebecca signs her papers and tells Kim that. Howard suggested Jimmy go through Chuck's house and take whatever trinkets he'd like. The burnt down husk of his house. There's some that, things in the garage that were barely even touched. Right. Light smoke The microwave. Damage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Howard hands Kim a $5,000 check and a personal letter from Chuck to Jimmy. When Rebecca leaves, Kim unleashes pure fury on Howard for unloading his guilt onto Jimmy. Uh, this performance, I I was absolutely moved by this performance. It's blistering. And powerful. It's kind of thing that will like I feel like would sideline you for a day or two because like just <laughs> right. screaming like uh-huh. that in in righteous anger uh is got to be some and like that's that that's a full day of filming, like I felt like. You know, yeah. like take after take of that kind of stuff. It's got to do a number on, on your voice. Um for and sure. It's funny because, like, on this, uh, the first time I watched this, I was just blown. I, you know, I could feel the heat coming off the screen. I was blown away by the performance, and I'm like, you know, she really, she really kicked uh, Howard's ass up between his shoulder blades. Mm-hmm. But in second, like, I, I really like Howard because I felt like he handled the situation the best you can. Sure, like yeah. he tried to do some defense of himself, but like in the face of her withering onslaught that he was emotionally moved by, at the end he stops making excuses and just mm-hmm. like I mean, I think he could probably said, "I'm so sorry. What can I do to make this right?" That's a mature way to handle that. Yeah, not like get the fuck out of my office. Like you know, well you're a bitch too. Like just like how and and you know Kim saying you know, you know there's nothing you can do. That's that's fair as well. Mm-hmm. But like. Yeah, it's it, it's just a really it's just a really great scene, and uh, I mean, there's also the idea that like Howard and I definitely saw Chuck's ex wife, kind of like as you know Kim is like accepting these things, these details, and she's like, uh huh, uh huh, and what else, uh huh, and what they could see that like this is just this is just really poor form and poor show. Yeah, I, I mean, everything that happens in this scene is an insult to Jimmy. Right. Like, like think oh. of how much time and effort, the years yeah. that Jimmy spent yeah. caring for his brother Chuck, right? Right. I mean, th- there's a lot of subterfuge behind the scenes that they don't know about, but sure. on the face of it, a $5,000 check and probably a fuck you letter yeah. is no way to reward the years of dedicated brotherhood he's given Chuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the whole, like, like, Howard knows better than any way, anyone how much Chuck tried to keep Jimmy down yeah. in the legal career and mm-hmm. to give him like some pity spot, some honorary position on the board that's going to bequeath uh, scholarships to, you know, undeserved, like undeserving to, yeah. to deserving youths. Uh, it's it is like you said, it, yeah. you, everything, everything. We don't know what the letter says. Um you know, there is the possibility that the letter might have been some kind of conciliatory thing because I doubt that Chuck updated his will right before kicking the lantern off. Uh-huh. But, like, from what we know of their relationship, 99 times out of 100, Chuck wakes up out of the uh, out of bed and thinks, uh, you know, I'm not going to amend my will to make it a little bit sweeter to Jimmy. So, yeah, there is... And, and the $5,000 check should be a reflection of what's in that letter. Right. 
Right. It has to be. It's an insult. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. But I, I don't know. This is, in my mind, the best scene of the episode Um. in, you know, an episode that has a couple of really good scenes. Uh. Anything else you want to say about this or move on? I don't think so. Just uh, okay. it's, uh, her, Kim's rage, it was just a, uh, just lots of white heat coming off of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jimmy returns home with food. Uh, Kim hides Chuck's letter amongst her paperwork and asks him how the job search went. He says, I got an offer, but it didn't feel quite right, so I didn't take it. Uh, that's a lie by omission, certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. They sit down, begin to watch a movie, but begin uh, making out almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Later that night, while Kim sleeps, Jimmy gets up to do some research on this statue that he saw at Neff Copiers, this uh, Bavarian boy, as it's mm-hmm. called on the on the search. When he sees that it's worth over $8,000, he calls Mike and tells him, got a job for you. I can't imagine that this is just going to be a smash and grab kind of thing, right? I mean, obviously not smash and grab. Right. But I don't think this is just going to be stealing the statue. Jimmy's plans usually involve more than that. And I know there was that one with the Kettleman's where Mike broke into their house and stole their money, but that was in pursuit of a larger goal. Right. I don't see Jimmy as the kind of guy who just has people steal things for him. Yeah. Even though it, that's... Like maybe he's going to scam somebody into buying these things. Right. And he's going to... You know, I, I don't know what Mike's role in this is going to be, but it's not just going to be stealing that I mean, it statue. seems like it'd be pretty easy to do. Like, you pick yeah. a lock, you go in, you maybe disarm an alarm, and you go in. It's, this is not like Catherine Zeta. Mike's not going to be wearing a black cat suit and oh, slinking his ass underneath laser what trip I wires. I would give and, to see that, though. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> maybe in the bonus materials for the for, for the, the Blu-rays of the season. Uh, but I mean, I don't know because I I after in the, I wrote my notes. Why is Jimmy with Kim? Because mm-hmm. he's not like when she gives him like she says like there's some really nice things like wow you had a pretty good first day and you know you know someone will be lucky to get you and he just kind of scoffs he's dismissive he's he takes compliments about as well as I do, but like mm-hmm. if you're not going to take advantage like and but and then they just, they just says passionate makeout session which. Uh, well, I mean, they're adults. They probably they probably fucked the camera going blurry. Oh, yeah. Probably in case that they the AMC that fucked. fish saw way more that than we fish, did. That's right, a fish. Uh, um, I, I I I don't get it. I don't get it because they're literally oil and water, and Jimmy has no interest in meeting her halfway. Mm-hmm. Like literally, one day of fruitful job hunting, and he's already planning to steal or defraud something. Which you know, like. Kim just is never going to be down with that, especially innocent. Like, she might not have a problem taking, like, Ken wins down a peg or two or scamming some dude out of uh, a nice bottle of booze at the country club. But, you know, these copy guys didn't do anything wrong. They're going to steal their Nana's Hummel figures or whatever the hell it is. Like, I I don't get Mm -hmm. it. I don't – because Jimmy's not getting anything other than – you know, some like emotionally charged sex. Maybe, maybe I just answer my own question. I, I don't understand what's in it for either of these people. Well, I mean, their their relationship is weird right now. They're both lying to each other, right? I mean, Jimmy comes it home and says, "It has always been that I, way." There has never been like authentic moments between these guys, people ever since they've like officially gotten together. There was some honesty yeah, and stuff I, back in the beginning, when, yeah, yeah. You know, but I just don't see it now. Hmm. And that's been the kind of like the just. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm not saying it's unrealistic or anything like that. It's just sad to watch because mm-hmm. 
you see these relationships all the time. Like, why are these people together? They don't seem like they like take joy in each other's company. Like, like other than the actual sex, like it seemed very perfunctory. Like, oh, I brought uh, you know Jimmy's trying to force this fun like casual. I brought home this Thai food, and oh, let's choose between these two, you know crazy movie options we can cut up but like there's no like real joy or verve in in it it's all very perfunctory yeah i I mean i think it's it's become that way because of you know the events that transpired um jimmy's certainly not enjoying anything he's doing right now uh but i i don't know i I look at kim's side of this relationship and i Mm -hmm. say she's doing as much as she possibly can and and when when i say like they're both lying to each other her lies are well-intentioned. They're kind. And, and and I almost would label them as the right thing to do. Here. Sure. Just give him some time and space. Right, right. That's, that's what he needs right so now. This guy's hurting, and yeah. he's, you know, emotionally constipated. I get all that. Whereas uh, Jimmy's lies here are not as well-intentioned. <laughs> Nowhere no. near. Maybe, maybe slightly understandable, given mm, his sure. mental state, but not well-intentioned, and they never have been, right? He's always been hiding something intentionally from her that he knows she won't like if she hears. Right. And I never felt like Kim's side of the relationship has been that. It's always been more supportive. It's always right. been more, uh, just more, I don't know, adult, more satisfied in that relationship. I don't know. It's weird. Because back weird. when I was a Christian, they're always talking about, you know, you don't want to be unevenly yoked with a spouse. Right. You don't, and they're always in the right. sense of like, you don't want to marry someone that doesn't have your, your, your core Judeo-Christian beliefs or like, you uh-huh. know, you don't want to marry an atheist. You don't want to marry a, a Hindu or whatever. Uh, and obviously I think that's a crock of shit, but I do think in a broad sense, like it is important that like you better have someone that broadly agrees with your sense of morals and ethics. Yeah, and those are the like, important things. Like what speed of life that you want to take things at. And I just don't see any Jimmy's always cutting corners and mm-hmm. taking a scenic route. She's always direct and diligent. You know, he's always trying to break rules. She's all about enforcing them. Like, I I mean, it, it, what I think is funny is, like, as like, I feel like Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan got together and, like, look at these the great chemistry these people have. Let's really fuck it up. Because the one <laughs> thing I, ne- I would have never thought in season one is that these people would have, these two people would have, like, emotionally awkward scenes. You know, because they did have this really easy, you know, chemistry. And now it's like it feels like two roommates that are refusing to talk about the issue of the dishes that are not being done. And it it all seems to be coming from that one side, which is Jimmy. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, when I I'm I'm, uh, I'll put all the blame on Jimmy for sure, because it's it's, you know, he like I feel like. I feel like Kim's kind of trying. She's, Mm -hmm. like, learning from her past mistakes. Like, hey, I got to slow down. I got to take care of myself. I got to stop and smell the roses. And But he's, again, like, what what is this humble shit coming from? He doesn't need that. Yeah. But but I think is, like, I think that he just, one of the reasons he's so dismissive about this praise is that he just can't hear it. He literally can't have someone say, you know... Put aside the lawyer business and put aside, you know, maybe you wanting to work beside your brother at HH&M. That's your birthright. You've got a lot of great qualities and in lots of careers you would be gangbusters. Yeah. So do that. You could make you could probably make a quarter million a year selling copiers in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Do that. You know, you, and also it's something you love. You love talking to people, figuring out what makes them tick. Get like you can fucking legally scam people. It's called being in sales. Yeah. You know, sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Weird thing is, I do think that Jimmy likes to help people too. Yes, it's it's kind of strange, but like when he's on this this elder elder law trip, right. I feel like he's doing a good thing, right? And he gets some pleasure from doing a good thing. And here's another, like you know, I think there's Just outside ass- forces come into play that push him in bad directions, and he he willfully follows those yeah. those directions. Yeah, and like you know, being an ethical salesperson is all about that niche where you find you you try to sell people, but you're trying to guide them to solutions that they need. Yeah, um, so. I I think he, that would be a great a great fit for him and he's just not doing it. He's instead offering Mike this ridiculous job offer, you know. And that's the thing is like I wonder what how is how is Mike going to get sucked into it? Cuz I'm assuming he's mm. I'm assuming he is going to get sucked into it, right? Uh yes. But why? I, I think so. He's sitting he is doing well, I mean, Mike look, Mike has a temporary job. Hmm. As far as he knows, right? He's right. got this two hundred grand that he's laundering through them as soon in what twenty months, as right. soon as that is, or less than because right. they're taking a cut. Uh, in less than two years, he's going to be out of work again. So maybe you know he still needs jobs. He still but, needs but split money. Eight he grand, just, like, and that's if you get full uh, price right, for this right. thing. Like, I it seems small potatoes even for like old time Mike and Jimmy kind of scams. I agree. Like, if it was a bag full of you know one hundred fifty grand, right. Sure, or 1.5 million, or whatever he took from the Kettlemans. I wonder if this is going to be something like we've seen, like like Mike is going to be across him at a diner, and he's going to be like, "You don't know what you're doing. You have been out of work. You know, like you got like like if like Mike's going to try to sit him down and like talk some sense into him. Like you don't, you know, like you've got Could a be. good thing going here with the girlfriend, and you really should concentrate on that. Why are you doing? Not just a hustle, but a small time hustle. Mm-hmm. You know, like why am I going to? I was like, like imagine Mike. No matter how safe he thought it was, like I, I, I guess, got to think that Mike's sitting there in his recliner watching Isotope game, thinking, if I get pinched for this job, like you know, if I get arrested and sent like to jail for stealing a fucking Hummel figure, I'll blow my brains out. Like this is what yeah. brings Mike R. Ermintrout down. Like the, the the risk reward, it's just there's no reward that's worth the risk. Yeah. How small it is because it's just at the end of the day four grand if you got a good fence for it you know yeah Danny Ocean is not is not going into this job no <laughs> Danny Ocean's looking for the safe vault right if you're going to risk prison time like vault, right you there. know it's like I've always said like because I used to joke with my uh, you know I had this boss who used to joke you know that I had all this access to financials and stuff and you know it's like oh you just got to trust and I'm like look you could leave up to. Five million dollars in cash on my desk, and it would be safe. The uh, second it gets five million one, <laughs> I'm off the tee. Like, like, don't fucking tempt me to beyond what I can bear. But like, why yeah. the hell am I going to flush my career down because I can maybe fuck your company out of fifteen grand? Right. What the hell? Right. You know, like it's that's just, the thing. If you're not setting yourself up for life, you've failed. Right. Right. That's the <laughs> you, whole. You've just committed a crime for nothing. Right. Like you're like the smart class of criminals go for that. The dumb. Yeah. You know, the dumb and like I guess by necessity is is properly understood that you, they're the ones that get screwed into stealing humble figures. Yeah. And Jimmy's neither. So what's he doing? I don't know. He's he's trying to find his way, and it's not working. Not working very well. All right. We go on to the final scene where Nacho and Ponytail roll up to the meeting with Victor and Tyrus. Determined to accept no less than six kilos of, I wrote drugs because I, I think it's cocaine, but I'm not sure. It's actually baby powder. Uh huh. Like, <laughs> yeah, that six six key was just yeah baby powder. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't taste it. He should have. Uh, when Victor attempts to give them five, Nacho threatens to kill them unless they hand over one more. 
Victor relents, and they walk away with six. Unfortunately for Ponytail, Gus is hiding in the parking lot when they come outside. He suffocates Ponytail with a bag, and he tells Nacho that he now owns him. What, I mean, this scene is crazy. Just the fact that, like, in Nacho's perspective, he's watching, I don't know this guy's his friend, but a colleague get killed in, like, one of the slowest, most agonizing ways possible. And, like, also just very cold-blooded. Like, you know, it's like... I always find it chilling when you see a person treat another person like a piece of meat. Yeah. Like, cause like, you know, we, uh, in our, in our day to day life in Western civilization, like, you know, we walk past people all the time. We, we acknowledge their dignity as people. And like the idea that someone would just like kill someone through neglect or like this, where you just like literally just put yeah. a bag over their head and make them. And, and it also is an interesting audio choice because throughout the whole, you know, riot act that Gus is reading Nacho, you hear this guy desperately gasping for breath he's never going to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some interesting details on that on the Insider podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. They, did their, they did their suffocation research? Uh, I, I don't know if they did the it research. It wouldn't be surprised for, for they me. They did if, the tests. I was gonna, it wouldn't be surprised for, for me to be Vince is like, in my long history of playing with autoerotic asphyxiation, you know? Because <laughs> right. he's just like a really nice guy, but you can tell there's around the edges, there's some there's some dark shit happening. He's like, yeah, you yeah. know, it's like that I mustache stud- and smile is not everything. Da- the David Carradine tapes and uh, the world's <laughs> greatest dad, and we determined that. What, what? So what's the story? No, it's coming from the editor. Actually, they didn't have all the audio coverage that they needed for that. They oh, did, really? They didn't get good enough audio on it and so when he's in the editing room they just decided fuck it put a bag on my head let's record it and let's fully that in there no kidding <laughs> so there are there's apparently and they recorded the video of it so apparently there's a video floating around of chris i think mccaleb with a bag on his head making the noises that mm-hmm. you would make as you're stre- suffocating mm-hmm. to death mm-hmm. and that's what they used if you were i think it would be funny because like the whole time i'm watching i'm like this is pretty sick shit but like that looked like fairly thin plastic. If mm. I was Ponytail, I'd be tempted to just like bite. suck it into yeah. my mouth and try to bite it or just suck so uh, hard it, it overcomes the tensile strength of the plastic. It'd be so uh-huh. funny to hear Gus like, from now on, you hear this like, <laughs> and then the guy like takes <laughs> oh, a deep breath. Yeah, it's like, oh God. It's like, I mean, <laughs> you're delaying the inevitable, right. but it would be, it's like almost, it'd be like an Austin Powers moment, you know? Yeah. Like, like it just like and it just completely like how does Gus then roll like Gus a badass is like, after that se- did, second bag did we bring a second right. bag no second nope. bag so, damn it so he just grabs Victor's gun and unloads a clip into his chest but yeah I still think you lose a few badass points in front of Nacho if, if that <laughs> shit happens you know do but yeah that would have been ridiculous but Ponytail uh, wasn't fast enough thinker with uh, four four millimeters of uh, plastic over no. his face. No, and this is the culmination of what I think is a great scene all around. Like, this this showdown between Nacho and yeah. Victor is a showdown that I would love to fucking see. Yeah. I would love it, and I couldn't tell you who would win. Doesn't Victor look like... Because, like, Vic, he looks like such a badass here. Mm-hmm. And I, I started inventing this backstory that he was probably, like, this res kid, and he escaped to the army... Uh, like, and it was like maybe even like, f- f- like when he was not even 18 yet, and you know, he was ser- served in the Gulf War, and he's like, because he's got that like military it's all based jacket. on his jacket, yeah. and he's just fucking hard ass. Like, dude like pulls it, yeah. a gun at him, and like, and he's just like, neither, neither him nor Tuvok's blood pressure go up a single millibar of mercury or whatever the fuck it's, it's measured in. Like, yeah. they're just ice water in their veins, they, they don't, they. They give no, like, and the fact, when you see the scene and you realize that when he throws that, this is all part of the plan. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then, like, I one thing I asked in an instant is like, does Gus do this if they don't do fuck with him over the keys? I think, yeah. I think regardless of what happens, Ponytail is the dead man. Yeah. But it is. And it's like they build that tension, you know, of Nacho back in this play he doesn't agree with, but he has to. And then it's kind of like all the tension bleeds out when you see him walk. And then when he's it, – it's, it's yeah. Well, I mean, this it's is – a roller coaster. This is definitely, like, the the best option here for Gus because, I mean, he's got the ultimate blackmail material on Nacho, right? Like – if Nacho tries to go to Eladio or somebody and say, hey, uh, Gus, you know, killed one of your guys and he won't give us the keys we need, like, right. tries to blow up Gus's spot. Gus just says, oh, yeah, well, this guy fucking poisoned Hector. Right. Or not poisoned him, but right. just, that's a complicated mess. But, yeah, he this is the guy that killed Hector, essentially. Yeah. I, I mean, that'd be interesting because that'd be, like, seems, seems like mutual assured destruction. Uh-huh. Although yeah. I guess Gus could play it like... How would Gus play that? Because like, if Nacho beats him to the punch, I don't. I, how does how does Gus talk his way out of that? Like the guy yeah. says, "Hey, he killed me and tried to flip me, or he killed my he he killed Ponytail and tried to flip me." And then Gus says, "Well, maybe, but my man saw him dump something suspicious in the river, so mm-hmm. like I, huh? I yeah. Who do you, who do you?" take it their word there yeah like gus has to be the first one to bring the evidence so then anything that nacho says seems like a justification or seems like you know a way to like spin the truth because if I mean, it's that... like a mutual disclosure i think they both die yeah in which case like i i think it's interesting because now that i'm thinking about it it seems like nacho is the one that would do- pull that trigger like if it's going to be saving his family business mm-hmm. versus lifetime servitude to gus why not pull that ripcord but we know we know that doesn't happen well, we know that regardless of what happens, Gus doesn't die. Exactly. And Gus doesn't even get really estranged from the, the local gang, so, yeah. And I can't imagine a scenario where Hector has the cousins and Gus doesn't die. Like, if if that's found out. Yeah. You know? no, so, I, I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of ways this could go, and I'm interested to see how it does go. There's, there's a really... I talked about the slow zoom on Nacho. There's a godfather-esque just beautiful slow zoom on nacho after this this uh showdown between him and victor where you know ponytail's packing up the drugs and it's Mm -hmm. just zooming in on nacho Mm -hmm. and you can see fuck what have i got myself into here right i'm not i'm so far from being out of this right uh and it's just like all the action is going on in the front he's just standing there like a statue Mm -hmm. it's it's a great shot i loved it yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing. It's like if you got if you're gonna do this meandering approach to filmmaking, like having, you know, what's that phrase? Every every uh, the, the every Kubrick, shot every of shot painting, of painting or every, something like that. Yeah, uh, every frame, every frame of painting. Yeah. It's you 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 got to do it this way yeah. because boy, if you meander and are not visually interesting and dynamic, yeah. So it's a testament that they can meander so much, and because uh, I feel like we could blow through this outline in like thirty minutes. Uh-huh. Like, like you know, like we we spent a lot of time talking about like the 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 backstory and like the emotions and all that kind of stuff, and maybe that's the point. Yeah. Like you know, the actual outline. Like most of my shows, when we do an hour of television, my outlines are like three to five pages. I'm pretty consistently one one and a half page with Better Call Saul. Yeah, I, I mean it's all it's writing, a character driven show, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're yeah. talking about the what the characters are feeling and it's thinking. almost like modern impressionist art, like. <laughs> We're not talking about the things in front of us. We're talking about the negative emotional spaces that are not being shown, you know? Sure, yeah. Uh, 
that's important. It is. It is. And it's it's interesting to see them exploit that. And the final thing I want to say is this is, as everybody probably realized, only the second time we've ever seen Gus get his own hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one being uh, poor Victor, who's Victor. also in the scene, who gets it. Uh, th- I just didn't expect this from Gus, I guess. Him to come out with the bag, come out with a beating, bashing someone's head on a so car. So that's what I want to talk about. Um, because you're right, Gus is not just get his hands dirty, but he's pretty competent at it. Like, it's not just a bag and zip, it's bag, mm-hmm. smash his head, take him down to the ground. Like, he's hog rest- tie him, yeah. Yeah, knee in the, in the shoulder blades, hog, like, there is a, a physical dynamicism that I've not seen, you know, even the thing with Victor, that's a surprise, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, Victor's kind of, like, bled out before he can really put up a resistance. Um, you know, there's a lot of, like, uh, a hue and cry on... Well, not a lot. It's the Breaking Bad. There's the It's the Better Call Saul fan Reddit on, on Reddit. But, like, someone brought up the point about, like, how do we reconcile this with uh, Gus's I don't find fear to be an effective motivator of people? I mean, I guess I never, like, once... You know, once we saw the full scope of Gus, I always thought that was just part of the mask he was wearing. Like, that's what he would say, like, to Walter White, mm-hmm. who wants to see himself as a man who can keep himself at a distance and just, you know, make a clean, uh, safe, does-as-advertised product. Like, why, Why? you know, it's, it's kind of like uh, he, he's very Stringer Bell. Like, why Why can't we sell this product without bullets and blood getting, getting involved? Yeah. Uh, I always thought that was a put-on, so I, ne- I don't see a dichotomy there. I just see that as, like, yet another pleasant lie that Gus told uh, to get Walt under his thumb and that we increasingly saw that lie kind of fade away and that mass slip as he got more and more frustrated with Walter. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, do yeah, you have a problem be. with it? I mean, I might modify that statement and say I don't view fear to be a good long-term motivator. <laughs> right. Because in a moment... It can certainly make the difference between someone doing what you want and not. Sure. Um, And I think, you know, there's the opportunity here for... I've always viewed Nacho's potential as being brought in under Gus's wing. Uh, That sort of happens here, but in a very threatening, fear-based way. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just Act 1, you know, and Act 2 and 3 are going to be ingratiating Nacho to, to, you know, Gus's operation, bringing him in. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder because I I also saw someone um, mention that maybe one thing that would be interesting to go with um, go down with, uh, you know, Gus co-opting Nacho is that maybe uh, Mike and Nacho have a similar relationship to like Jesse and Mike. Hmm. All right. What I say, I said, yeah, Mike, Mike and Nacho having a similar relationship to Mike out of Jesse. Mm hmm. And they already have a kind of a working familiarity with each other. Right. So, like, it would be interesting to see if... But I don't know. Mike's not going to help him plot against Gus. No. He might well help him plot against Salamanca. Maybe that's a way that everyone can get... But it seems like, you know, Gus has got this really crazy idea of, like, what exactly, you know, Hector deserves. And by God, he's going to get it. And mm-hmm. nobody else is going to give it to him but... But Gus, not even God or the Grim Reaper, is going to be able to have their they, they get back in line behind Gus in the in, in the revenge and retribution department. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So before we get to email, I want to talk about the club. And you know, before you say you have to wait a week before you get your credit card, 
Uh, I just got to say, have you really considered the opportunity cost of missing out on joining the club? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to miss another lunch, might miss another movie review, uh, definitely going to miss an instant talk podcast with Better Call Saul. Uh, you know, like, like why wait? Why, why wait to pull the trigger? Yeah. You know, you're eventually going to sign up for the club anyway, and you're going to have to go back and watch all of those things. Right. In retrospect, you don't get to participate in the conversation. Right. It's going to be a shame. The, the credit card sliding in and out of the reader is the ka-chunk, ka-chunk that makes <laughs> Bald Moves heart beat. And I know we don't actually have credit card readers and Saul, and it's the click-clack and the key, whatever. We're, we're, the, the, the point is, uh, we need to, oh, wait. I think they're actually. Get, I hear they're getting out the credit card. I do. Too. I hear that kachunk kachunk. It's like, working. Seriously, just because two dudes in the Midwest told you you should support us, you're just going to whip out your credit card like that? <laughs> Suckers. I. I. Suckers. Honestly, I feel sorry for you. That's it. That's the yeah. End of the episode. It sure is. Uh, let's get the feedback. Bettercastsall at baldmove.com. Joseph S. is up first. Uh, these next few are in response to last week's podcast that we were a little bit early on. So I want to clean up some old business first. Wanda uh, write in real quick and say, I don't think Jimmy's turn at the end of the episode was due to relief at not being held responsible for Chuck's self-immolation. I read it as Jimmy celebrating a final victory over someone who up until then he couldn't beat and kept belittling him throughout his life. Um, Huh. I mean, not a bad take, but like it's a very tone deaf take. It, I think it's a very simplistic look at it. Yeah. I think there might be some of that in there. Yeah. But. Man, it's a complicated stew. Right. Because, like, even if Jimmy was that is the thing that's motivating him in that scene, like, you'd think he would have enough self-awareness to be like, oh, I'm going to wait until my girlfriend is not in the room for me to start pumping my fist and going, yes, yes, I beat you, Chuck. <laughs> uh-huh. Hashtag fuck Chuck. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, it's a perfectly sound theory. I just, it's still, you have to explain why Jimmy would have that reaction inappropriate reaction knowing that it's inappropriate and just doing it anyway so mm-hmm. i don't know I, I i that's the thing i have no idea what they're trying to do with jimmy and his emotional state that's what they're trying to do confuse right because because jimmy is confused i imagine though it will make sense in retrospect like I if, hope you, so. if at the end of the season yeah. when we look back we'll be like oh yeah yeah when i watch these beats these are lining up with what what jimmy was feeling at the time mm-hmm uh oh what is let me gauge your interest on something uh chuck either flashbacks or like ghost chuck scenes not literally (laughs) but like but like oh no like like what if jimmy like imagine like if if they he imagines his brother tormenting him and we see that in 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 a white gown and chains yeah Yeah. no i mean (laughs) but you know like like i I mentioned like the chucks over his shoulder kind of thing in that job interview like what Uh if they choose to visualize that as as is that something you'd be interested in like i think flashbacks yeah we'll probably get some some flashbacks flashbacks. yeah i would think so especially given how much they liked working with michael mckean yeah um i don't know about ghost chuck ghost chuck I don't know, like Ghost Chuck kind Tormented of appearing vision Chuck, in a room. Yeah, yeah, like like, 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 like it seeming as if he's in the room there with him. Yeah, like, is like, what, you're what about. if this, like, let's 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 go to this copy salesman room. Yeah, and uh, Michael McKean's just in the background as Jimmy is like looking smug, and he just kind of looks mm-hmm. at him, rolls his eyes, right, and then fades out. Like, would that have been a good change, bad change? Because that would definitely, I think, understate what Jimmy's feeling. It would definitely put your thumb on a narrative scale, would, saying yeah. the ghost of Chuck is haunting him. But 
I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's what they're going for here, so yeah. I say it probably won't happen. Although, if it were to happen, that 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 would be, I guess that would be a nice grounding moment for me as a viewer. Because also like, they used like you know sometimes uh, Walt having an altered state of consciousness to like confuse his son for Jesse, like. Yeah. And hear things that weren't like there are ways, you know, like like Jim- or the fly, right? Could they bring something in like the fly? Yeah, that tells us that this this represents Chuck. Yes, 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 yeah. exactly. And, and Jimmy's uh, feelings for his brother. There's a coyote is going to be in his backyard. A, just, a Gila just, monster. Just, <laughs> a Gila, Gila monster, monster that he passes. Shows up, yeah. Right, everything that that just abhors electricity. <laughs> he opens his bag. Boom. Right. There's a monster in it. Right. Uh, Tim K was astonished when I listened to your 401 podcast and you guys seemed completely oblivious to the fact that the guy Mike steals his ID from is a low rent Walter White lookalike. I felt like I don't man. I, I still don't agree with that. Like, I mean, I still I don't don't agree with that as a person assessment. who the he's first, a bald man. OK, when, when I first saw a when like for a second and it was that long shot of the guy in, like, what was he wearing? Like, a puke green button-up and khaki slacks, and he's in this kind of nondescript suburban home. I did get a feel of, like, oh. And then I do think that you're supposed to understand he's a guy like Walt, though. Maybe? No? I, I mean, I'm just not seeing it. But All right. Well, he says the Think scene- what you want. Tim says the scene. I'm going to let Tim uh, speak for all the people who were fooled by this uh, fraudulent pseudo-Walt. Mm. Uh, the scene of him and the kid on the bike starts out with a very wide shot of a typical ABQ suburban house, not entirely dissimilar to the White family's domicile. We see the middle-aged bald man in khaki pants, a short sleeve button-up shirt, and a tie walking out the front door across his yard. Given the angle of the shot, it's impossible to make his face uh, very clearly, but my instant first reaction is, holy shit, are we getting a Walt cameo already? Uh... And so his opinion was this was the Villigan trolling us, knowing that we'd be on the lookout for a Walt to show up in the series... I I think that he's probably not entirely wrong because the way they did shoot this with the this extreme long range that I think people could be forgiven for getting a little excited that this might be like a Walter White sighting. But I mean, it, I, I just look at like um, other characters like Price. You want to say that Price is a Walter White analog because he looks similar, he wears shitty clothes, like he drives a shitty car to begin with. Like how how many how many bald people with less than stellar attire are meant to evoke yeah, Walter any, White? Any schlubby middle aged white guy in Albuquerque, like right. there might be of fifty thousand Walter White. Mostly middle aged schlubby white guys. Let's yeah. be real. Yeah, yeah. I I just don't buy that. Well, that's shots fired, like Albuquerque. I don't know about that. <laughs> Been there. It's a lovely town. Sure, got the fair share of I mean, schlubby, it... schlubby middle aged dudes, <laughs> yeah. but I don't know. They have more than their fair share, as Jim Jones seems to be implying. <laughs> Noted Albuquerque <laughs> hater. Yeah, I, I I'm just saying. I I don't think it's. He also hates your green anything. chili. That's true. He's... I hate I hate the chili where I live too. So. <laughs> it's true. Everyone hates Cincinnati chili unless yeah. you're born here. Uh, Mark from Omaha. Getting back to Chuck's estate. Uh, Chuck has been a name partner at one of the biggest law firms in Albuquerque, even the whole Southwest. The house he lived in, national even. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the house he lived in was nice, but considering what he was earning as a partner all those years, his lifestyle wasn't indicative of his an income. He had an average house, no car payments, never took a vacation. His electric bill was virtually nothing. <laughs> even if the settlement for HH and M was to disappear, he probably would have had several million dollars state over and above that. They he did. He did. He, he put up... He, he set up a huge endowment for that's 
for kids, right? Scholarships. So yeah, like a gen, like he I, did have a ton of money saved, it, up. and it does yeah. seem like that maybe was his plan all along. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need, you know, I got a nice piano, and I've got. He, I mean, he had very nice things. He, yeah. he, he it seemed like his philosophy is I want to live in a Fabergé egg rather than a giant empty mansion that you know just full of stuff I don't need. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, in season one, wasn't wasn't part of the tension that Chuck was running out of money? And that he wouldn't take the checks that HHM was sending him? Uh, I don't know. Could, could it be that he was just running out of liquid cash and that his retirement account was actually where he kept the bulk of his funds? Or it could be that Jimmy just didn't know everything. Or it could be that Jimmy yeah. was more interested in trying to f- force a buyout so he could get a little bit of his beak wet. I, yeah, I, there, I, was I, I, there was a little bit of like, It's kind of like trying to remember the entailment the thing in the first season of Downton Abbey. It was a thing. It was something that drove the plot. Oh. I'll be damned if I could explain it even now. So, yeah. Um, let's see. Barry H. Hey, guys. I'm a professional violinist and wanted to comment on the music from Chuck's funeral. It's an 1893 piece by French composer Gabriel, uh, French name, <laughs> called Cecilienne. Yeah, I thought uh, we talked about this. Well, here's the thing. You incorrectly stated in your podcast it was composed by Chuck's wife, Rebecca. You are correct that in season two, Cobbler episode, Rebecca's name is at the top of the, sh- the music. Chuck is playing at the piano. Mm. However, the composer is also shown. Rebecca's name is ah. written in pen to indicate that it's her copy of the music. Okay. I play this piece, which is a beautiful duet for violin and piano. Now, this is the thing that I, you know, th- yeah, we got wrong, Mia Culpa. Uh, actually, I think it was our listeners got it wrong. We are correct and upright in all that we do here. Obviously. Uh, so it's damn listeners to get us in trouble. <laughs> we would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for, for you damn listeners. Uh, uh, she says, um, or no, I'm sorry, he says, I play this piece, which is a beautiful duet for violin and piano. The violin has the melody most of the time, and the piano is more of a subservient accompaniment. It's especially sad that Chuck is meticulously practicing the piano accompaniment part when Rebecca is not there to play the beautiful melody. It's very Chuck-like to be slogging away practicing with a metronome and being frustrated that he can't keep up. Perhaps also how he felt he couldn't keep up with Rebecca in their life and their relationship. It's an interesting sort of competitiveness angle to this that's a strong part of his personality. Hmm. It's a nice touch for the writers to include this as an incidental background music for Chuck's funeral. If Chuck could actually hear it, it might have been a cruel reminder of his failed relationship. Perhaps it also would have been irritating to him to hear the piece of music he could never conquer in life being played effortlessly by someone else at his funeral. Related, uh, could it be possible that Rebecca was playing the violin at his funeral? She was too busy crying. Yeah, she, I mean, she was really broken up. Um, yeah, I would, I would, I would think so too. But I, I, I really like, uh, I like all the commentary that they're packing into this analysis of the piece, and yeah. I endorse it. My question is, who do you think chose that music? <sighs> would it be Jimmy? Would it be Rebecca? Would it be Howard? Probably Rebecca would be. I mean, that's that's. There's an interesting. Someone has a defense of Howard and really pointed out that like Howard. I mean, who planned this elaborate wedding uh, in the midst? Like, <laughs> God, they're marrying Chuck's corpse off to uh, off to someone. I mean, no. I mean, like it has to be like they're intimating that it's probably Howard that made all the arrangements, right? Because he I kind mean, of he's liked, the executor of the will. He's that. He, and he's, he kind of like he like he likes party planning, right? Like we saw that like with the you know trying so. to uh, plan Chuck a big bash last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like something that would fall to a family member. Yeah, uh, I think in most cases it does. But it seems natural that like that's probably one of, a piece that means a lot to him, and that's something Rebecca, a detail that Rebecca could provide. Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, I don't know. We we don't have any solid answers, but it would almost be cruel for Jimmy to choose that. It would be uh, bittersweet and and kind of nice for Rebecca to choose it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Paul from the UK. I'm just fi- picking up uh, on the Zafiro and Neho that sh- that Kim shares with Jimmy in episode 401. Uh, you commented on it must be the writer's go-to drink. However, as the bottle is not full, I believe it's the same bottle that Jimmy brought, bought to celebrate mm-hmm. after the Sandpiper Crossing people agreed to settle. All right. This would serve as a stark reminder to Jimmy that the last time he drank from that bottle, everything in his life was going well. Jimmy had just received over a million dollars. Chuck was no longer in his life. Um, Kim was becoming a successful independent lawyer. Now all that's gone. I'm just grateful they polished off the bottle. Otherwise, Jim may have pro-offer another version of his dead man's brew for Kim. <laughs> yeah, I should have done that two seasons ago or whenever. Dead man Zafiro. Dead woman Zafiro. <laughs> uh, hashtag cook Chuck. <laughs> when, will, when will Jimmy turn into Saul when the Zafiro's gone? That's right, when the last drop, and it's already gone, so I guess he's it's Saul. It's gone, damn it. Um, but good eye, good eye, Paul. Uh, Matt from Pittsburgh, what do you guys think might happen to change Francesca from the sweetheart tending to Kim's <laughs> needs at the end of Better Call Saul Season 3 to an exasperated accomplice helping trick uh, Saul trick the agents on the phone by the end of Breaking Bad Season 3? Saul? Yeah, I, I mean, Francesca, I needs, Francesca needs a job. Yeah. Right? She she got let go from, yeah. from their office. She's probably still looking, so Saul's going to come in, give her a job, and then slowly just ruin her life. I mean, that's the thing. Destroy this woman. Yeah, like at what point? And not not everyone has the flexibility to be like, oh, well, my boss slipped in their morals like one-tenth of a notch. I guess I better. And every time you compromise, it gets easy to compromise the next time. And Mm -hmm. it's death by a thousand paper cuts. It's boiling a frog. Um, Not to say Francesca is either a a frog or a sheet of paper. Or yeah, or yeah. getting getting gnawed on by Gila monsters, <laughs> slowly injecting the venom, <laughs> one nibble at a time. Yeah, you don't realize it until you're dead. All right, new shit. We are now on to the new episode commentary. Mike McSee, Better Call Saul is one of my favorite shows on television, but the series has progr- as the series has progressed, it feels like the show premise is mainly excused to show us the storylines of Mike and now Gus. On episode two, Partially. Gus. Yeah. Mike and Nacho had high-stakes storylines, but for Jimmy, it boiled down to a plan to steal an expensive trinket. I'm sure this scheme will get us one step closer to Saul and lead to interesting places, but I can't help but feel that the supporting character storylines deserve top billing. I mean, it seems to me that the Villa gang discovered this show in the writing of it. That they yeah, did yeah. not go in to write the show that they've got. Mm-hmm. So, um, And that was pretty evident from even before the series aired, right? right? They were talking about, like, what what is this show going to be? It can't just be Saul. Right. Uh, and they they kind of thought that's what it would be at the very beginning. Right. Yeah, I... Um, and I also kind of, like, I guess I don't agree that the high-stakes storylines were just for Gus and Mike because, like, I mean, that scene with, with Kim and Howard is pretty fucking high-stakes, personally. Mm-hmm. Talking about her relationship with the firm and Howard and how she's now like essentially throwing all that away to stand up for Jimmy who may or may not deserve it. Like I thought that, that I mean, those are Jimmy stakes, right? Uh, Jimmy destroying himself uh, because he can't resolve this emotional stuff he's got from his brother and how they ended things. Like that's pretty fucking high stakes. It's just not, 
It's not Breaking Bad. It's it's not throw, but but not all the stakes in Breaking Bad were even that high stakes. It was like, almost always life and death. I guess that's true. Like I mean, even from the very beginning. Like even when it's like friction between Skyler and Walt, it's still over the fact that things were life and death. Right. That Gus might come and kill them at any moment. <laughs> like, right. But like you know, I, I just I guess I don't want to say that like unless you're throwing bags over people's heads right. or you are you know putting guns to temples that there's no stakes. It really comes back to how invested you are in seeing the characters yeah. succeed. Yeah, especially since like you can't you there there are no stakes high enough for Jimmy mm-hmm. or Mike really or Gus because like if we're talking about bagging and guns the heads they all live like that's where Through I keep series, saying that yeah. like like Kim and Nacho are kind of like the real stakes uh, of anything mm-hmm. so like giving her yeah maybe this should be. Uh, the Kim and Nacho show, but who tunes in for that shit? <laughs> right. Better Call Saul. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm I'm getting less and less bothered that this show was a completely different approach to anything we could possibly imagine. And I don't like, you know, Mike was a big part of Saul's universe, and now they're making Kim and Nacho part of that universe. Like, you know, it wasn't just Walt and Jesse and Breaking Bad neither. Mm-hmm. You know, arguably, Hank kind of became the star of, like, season three and, you know, uh, certainly became the hero of the series in retrospect. Yeah. Uh, Sean McKay. Jimmy's meltdown at the copier company struck a chord with me. I felt like he had just waltzed, or he felt like he had just waltzed through something he thought was going to be so much harder. His old sparring partner, Chuck, had helped him hone his bullshit manufacturing down to a precise process, and now he realizes with Chuck gone... There aren't many people equal to the task of detecting his nonsense. Hmm. I can't wait to see where he's going to find his next real foil or how sloppy he gets if he doesn't. Um, that's an interesting take. This is kind of like Ghost of Chuck a little bit. Yeah. But more from a, like, uh, you know, Joker mourning the death of Batman than, you know, the where I was going, like, just haunted by his brother's judgment. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I wonder if Kim's going to evolve to be that. Because I do think she senses some of his bullshit but not to the extent that chuck did yeah as for nacho i think it's interesting to see a relatively intelligent guy stuck in a bad situation of his own making i'm worried that we'll see nacho uh taken under gus and mike's wing as an almost proto jesse and i'm afraid for what that might mean yeah Uh, we talked about that enough i guess let's move on to jeremy r uh jimmy literally did exactly what people do to get a job it's perfectly acceptable to put on a show to sell yourself an interview in fact it's increasingly required Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, if you see some, seen, seen some of that Silicon Valley shit, it's like high stakes dog and pony. Yeah. By normal standards, he aced the interview, yet Jimmy doesn't seem to be able to understand how this is any different from the cons he has done throughout his lifetime. And the thing is, like, persuasion is conning someone, mm-hmm. but it's usually not to, like, illegal ends, you yeah. know? Like, 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 con does not mean, like, convict. It means confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 earn someone's confidence and you ne- exploit it. Uh, earning someone's confidence is fine. That's how you get a job. That's right. how you buy, get a mortgage for a fucking house. What you do with that confidence is what makes it illegal. And maybe Jimmy just is too fucked up. Like he's like a he's like a, a porn star that can't have normal sex anymore. Right? You know? Like it's <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It feels like I'm feels like I'm punching a time clock. Um, 
Jeremy continues, does this show us that Jimmy can't exist within the normal world because he doesn't understand it? Is his inability to separate moral and immoral persuasion causing him to become Saul? Perhaps more interestingly, how does Gene view those around him? Does he too think everyone is a sucker? All really good questions uh, to which I don't have answers because I'm just as confused as everyone else. I will pro-offer that perhaps Gene has evolved to the point of seeing himself as a sucker. Like, he finally is the sucker who bet on the wrong thing and couldn't get his way out of it. So I feel like those kind of downfalls make you more empathetic, not less empathetic, but... So by playing everyone throughout his entire life, he actually played himself because now he doesn't have a life? Yeah, like, I mean, like, every single time he's going there and baking, you know... Bacon the fucking Cinnabons and icing the Cinnabons. You got to think like, Jesus Christ. I I used to take advantage of guys like me in bars, you know? Yeah, I the used wasted to, potential. Right. I used to slip and fall outside of places like this to get a paycheck. Like, you know, I was once a lawyer that made a $1.2 million settlement mm-hmm. that... Uh, yeah, I mean, that if I was just slightly more patient, I could have done it legally, and then none of this would have ever happened. Like that, I mean, boy, I tell you what, uh, I live my life in large part to avoid having those kind of regrets. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I mean, like a lot of times I can just see, it's like, man, what is the worst thing that can happen, and could I live with myself if it did it? Because, and I, it just it seems like that's the kind of guy he is. He's just haunted by those possibilities. Uh, Jordan, in, I've been meaning to write in about this since I listened to the preview episode because I want to flesh out the theory that Kim becomes Wendy from the Breaking Bad series. Oh, Jesus, yes. He, he's even named it the Kim D uh, theory. Could be catchier, but okay. So, well, I mean, yeah, what would it be? The whim. Whim. Ah. Yeah. The whim theory. The whim theory. Actually, okay. It's now, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jordan, it's now known as the whim theory. As the person who created it, yeah. I'm going to go with my partner's creative suggestion over yours. Uh, I think there's a really straightforward path to this becoming a reality. And I'm always open to be talked into my own crazy <laughs> oh, ideas. Uh, Kim's career ambitions are requiring her to work herself to death and avoid sleep as much as possible. Given the shady nature of Jimmy and his soon-to-be clientele, it would not be a stretch for Kim to hear stories of meth-fueled days of no sleep and become intrigued. All right. She could start microdosing meth to stay awake at first and have success, (laughs) but then as she builds up a tolerance, she could start using more and more and start needing it just to get throughout the day. Or I'll give you this. She gets a legal prescription or maybe a slightly illegal prescription for... uh, What's that shit that you take for, like, adult attention and def- deficit disorder? Uh, Percocet. Adderall. Adderall. Adderall, yeah. Like, I mean, it's an open secret to college students, uh, yeah. medical interns, like, business people are essentially taking this speed to do this kind of stuff. It would be, I imagine, <laughs> lo- like, law students, you know? Uh-huh. Like, and, and and not every I know for a fact that everybody that I know uses it has ADD or ADHD, you know. And let me throw some fuel on this fire from this episode. Right. Uh, Kim's talking about getting right back on that horse. She's got a broken arm, a busted up face from a car wreck she had because she fell asleep. Right. Because she overworked herself, and she's talking about eh, they don't really care that I'm back on this case, but I'm getting back on it. Right. 
that sounds like somebody who's microdosing meth to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like I think there's like just like you can get you can become a heroin addict by having a legal pain prescription right. that the doctor says, you know what, I shouldn't, you know, I, I shouldn't be giving you a hundred Vicodins a month. I, I I feel like especially when you come back every three days and say I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and again, like to save the emails, I'm not. I I definitely know that taken properly for the right diagnosis that sure. like Adderall is not necessarily something that people abuse all right all right if you're taking it because you got a problem focusing and you need it got no problems anyway uh then as she builds up a ton blah 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 oh as she uses more and more her work can start becoming more scatterbrained and lower quality causing her to spiral out of control and destroy her career forcing her into a life of prostitution Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that's a show uh, will go this route, but I think it could be both a uh, tragic, dramatic twist and social commentary. Also, think of the blowjays you can give when your teeth rot out. <sighs> One last thing in the way. Yeah. Seeing a by-the-book professional get sucked into a world of addiction and ultimately being destroyed by it shows that any of us could fall into that trap, especially in a country that has no interest in treating and helping, helping addicts. Amen, hallelujah. I actually think that would be, like, it's not in, like, a sadistic way, but, like, imagine if DeVilligan does reveal that Kim turns into Wendy over the course of, like, <laughs> two years of, look at, no, dude, look at Faces of Meth. It that would, shit can ravage you. It can. It would be too much for me. It would? It would, to make that direct it connection, was, yes. It, the thing is, it, it's... To it, push her down a path where you could see her one day becoming Wendy, that's one thing. To say... Kim turns into Wendy. That's her. Literally, that's her she is the same character. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, and I, honestly, I feel like it would almost play as a joke, like it a would, dark joke, yeah. because they they kind of uh, they kind of use Wendy as a joke a lot in the show anyway. Mm-hmm. So like, I agree that could be a powerful form of, a form of uh, uh, social commentary. I just don't know if it'd work in this context. All right, Reginald's about to stump for Howard. Is everybody strapped in and ready? Oh shit! Howard deserves a break. Let's say that Kim is right. Howard shared his hypothesis about Chuck taking his life with Jimmy, not to help him, but to unload his own guilt. Feeling guilty is a byproduct of a person's conscience, adversely judging them for something they said or did. On some level, this person feels they have done something unfair, immoral, or unlawful. This, of course, is different from remorse. A person may feel they did the right thing, but they are remorseful or sorry that it had to come to this. But isn't having a conscience a good thing? Some may say that Howard's feeling guilty wasn't the problem. It's unloading on poor old Jimmy that's the issue. Exactly. That's an understandable statement, but let's take another look at why Howard said he went to Jimmy. Let's I, not, though, because those aren't the real reasons he went to Jimmy. I thought I owed it to Jimmy. He said it. You're going ar- to you're argue with the original, okay? You, you owe it to Jimmy, but be- you don't owe it to Jimmy right now. You do what Kim's doing, and you let that shit be... Until Jimmy is ready to hear it. All right, you play. You Jim. deal with your own fucking guilt until Jimmy can handle it. You play Jim Jones. I'm going to play Reginald. Uh, well, well yeah. Just... Okay. How many of us would have the guts to go over to someone's house and say, "Oh, by the way, your brother that you buried today, I'm responsible for his death." Huh? What do you think about that? Yeah. You got those? How guts, many of us Jim would Jones? be dumb enough to do that? <laughs> A lot of us, probably. <laughs> you should be better than that, Howard. Uh, Howard didn't know that Jimmy's reaction was going to be, uh, didn't know what his reaction was going to be. Jimmy could have been uh, cursed him out, taken a swing at him, or even worse. That's how it is when you sincerely apologize to someone. You let your fate to be in their hands. That other person's judge during executioner, Howard was willing to take whatever Jimmy dished out because he thought he owed it to Jimmy. This is not, like, Howard's motivation here is not what's at question. It's Mm -hmm. when he should have done it. Mm Mm-hmm. Giving giving a little bit of forbearance to Jimmy as a human being who just lost his fucking brother in a horrific, what he views as an accident at that moment. 
let give him some time to process it and then unload your fucking guilt on him right then make yourself feel better well reginald wants to try a personal analogy on you oh boy a while ago my wife saw a co-worker put a raw unshelled egg in the break room microwave <laughs> this is this is equivalent <laughs> He thought the egg was going to get cooked, but of course it just blew up. We may question why a grown man couldn't have foreseen the regrettable outcome, but what happened next was worse. Once he saw what happened, he just walked away. There are a lot of people like that. They cause damage and leave it to others to clean up their mess. Sometimes it's not as bad as an exploded egg in a microwave. Sometimes it's much, much worse. Sometimes the fence is using the last roll of toilet tissue without replacing the roll. Maybe it's someone drinking all but a teaspoon of milk and then putting the carton back in the fridge. All those cases, the person just walks away. These walkaways need the grown-ups to clean up their mess or take care of business matters. Who was it to greet Jimmy and Kim at Chuck's house after it burned down and tried to spare Jimmy from seeing Chuck's charred corpse? Who was it to prepare the eulogy for the man who made him a pawn in all of his chicanery? Who was it to probably prepare Chuck's entire funeral while Jimmy sat on the couch in a catatonic state? Mm -hmm. All of this before he realized, oh, he committed suicide and now I feel guilty about it. Yeah. I mean... All of the good things he did happen before he connected the dots. That's the thing. Like, And then once he has some guilt to unload, he just fucking spews it on everybody. What I see more and more is people unable to put things in the proper context. Mm -hmm. Like, they say things are undeniably true, but right. then they don't put the context in. Like, you know, wearing a white sheet is cool on Halloween if you're being Casper to Friendly Ghost. Who could argue about that? Wearing a white sheet while you're marching down the street saying the Jews will not replace us, not cool. Right. Context and the setting and the time and place in which it takes is very important because otherwise we're just arguing unconnected facts that have, like, you know. And exactly. That, I, and I see a lot of, like, and I'm not picking on you, Reginald, because, like, I, I kind of soften on Howard a second time because anyone, you are right, that anyone can make a mistake and what separates, mm -hmm. like, the true asshole leave your egg in the microwave situation uh with the the the, the other people is this, the taking personal responsibility and i don't think that howard is afraid to do that no we talked about you know how he reacts yes. to kim's withering assault right he acknowledges yes i fucked up right a bad person would have thrown her out of office and called her everything but a christian name right. and then immediately would said to like well she's wrong and i got no and he's not that but i also think that you the what I can't get along with is saying that Howard has nothing to apologize Absolutely. for because yeah. and and the thing that he apologized for is not driving Chuck to suicide. <laughs> Courtney, uh, I watched episode four or two last night and listened to your instinct this morning. What you mentioned Tuco being in jail and that got me thinking. What if that's why Nacho isn't in Breaking Bad? Do you think we'll see Tuco released from jail before Better Call Saul ends? If so, wouldn't that be really bad news for Nacho? We all know Tuco can get pretty loco, to say the least. I can see him coming after Nacho just for switching the Gus aside, never mind the whole thing with Hector's pills, which you might not even find out about. But if he did, obviously Nacho's toast. Uh, I mean, actually, yeah, I, so you Nacho... missed a golden opportunity to say Nacho would be Belgrande because <laughs> you're, okay. mix, you're mixing up your toasted ground flour product, you That's know? That's true. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think the bigger problem would come to Mike. Uh -huh. If if Tuco got out right, because Mike is the one who sent him to prison for that gun charge. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he picked a fight with an old man, right? Uh, with an illegally uh, unregistered gun, and he went to prison because of it. So, right. I I don't think the dots connect to Nacho there. Well, I think she's more of like, um, I think she's more of like Tuco is probably going. We know that Tuco gets out of jail. Mm -hmm by very early on in Breaking Bad universe. Yeah. And 
there is a little bit of overlap, you know, because you know, I, I don't know exactly when this series is going to end and how many years it's between, you know, Breaking Bad and, and Better Call Saul. But like, yeah, and you know, Nacho was already worried about how crazy Tuco was being in jail and mm-hmm. having his uncle be wheelchair, like would just make him that. And the fact that it seems and like at, some point, at he... some point he starts getting high in his own supply. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that could be how he ends up getting buried out in the desert, if he ends up getting buried out in the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug L. is back for his legal corner. We missed him last week. Oh, he actually yeah. sent one in, but we recorded a day early, so we missed it. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about these things. Uh, last week was BC, or la, uh, last week's uh, Better Call Saw is light on legal issues, but here are some things to address. Uh, Chuck's obituary. Hamlin's obituary for Chuck was understandably written to sound impressive. Was it, was it longer than a usual obituary? It seemed like it. I mean, I've. I mean, for a person that prominent, probably not. Okay. Um, first, it's mentioned that Chuck was the editor of the Law Review. Law Review is a scholarly journal where uh, law students publish editor or articles on legal issues. Moot Court, yep. also known as Mock Trial, is a simulation of a trial where law students act as attorneys and witnesses, while a professor or other outside professional acts as the judge. Both of these are prestigi- prestigious, and it's rare for a student to hold both of these positions, as Chuck did. Hmm. It'd be a little like if in high school Chuck was the captain of the football team, editor of the school paper, student body president, and lead in the school play simultaneously. Chuck is the Sir Isaac Newton of law. He is. He's a polymath. Uh, he's also described as having clerked for the Tenth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. This is also a very prestigious position. There are three levels of federal courts, districts at the bottom, numbered circuits in the middle, and the Supreme Court at top. The Tenth handles appeals from federal courts in a number of states, including New Mexico, but not Illinois, which may explain Chuck's move from Cicero to the ABQ. Uh, clerks assist mm-hmm. judges by doing the legwork of legal research and writing in support of appellate court decisions. Understandably, you have to be a superstar to get clerkships like this and will likely buoy your legal career afterwards. Mutual friend of ours, Ian Samuel, clerked on the Supreme Court and runs yeah. a really top-notch legal podcast called First Mondays if you're interested in uh, that kind of superstar analysis of this, this current Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, for episode 402, Kim talks about the five grand to Jimmy as some kind of legal minimum. General speaking, there is no minimum about uh, to bequeath amount to bequeath someone. Chuck was free to divide up his state however he wanted, so if you wanted to give Jimmy only a dollar, he could have. It's possible New Mexico has some kind of weird rules about this, but I couldn't find mm-hmm. any. I think Kim's statement is more about the appearance of Chuck giving Jimmy something above zero rather than any legal issue here. Yeah. Um, That's how I read it. It's it's more like, yeah. Look, I didn't forget him in my will. Right. He can't come in and say, well, he must. That will must be invalid because right. I wasn't in it. Yeah, I'm his brother, and I'm not even mentioned. Right. What I the took fuck? care of him for years. How can I not? It, it is weird that Chuck. Would he just wasn't wouldn't... in the right mental state. You know all that stuff. But maybe like Chuck knew. I I, I try to get in Chuck's fucked up brain. <laughs> like if I left him a dollar, everyone thinks I'm a dick, right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> That's I'll leave jet. him five grand. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and whatever he can get out of the house. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, however, so so anyway, however, Chuck may not have been quite the dick as the show makes him out to be. As executor, Howard is limited to following whatever Chuck's instructions are. Howard says Jimmy is entitled to take any personal property from the house that he wants. Since Chuck likely wrote his will sometime before he decided to burn himself at the spur of the moment, he presumed Jimmy would be inheriting actual property, not their ashes. Chuck being Chuck likely owned valuable art, rare books, and more. He would also have had fire insurance. Jimmy should therefore be entitled to recover the insurance payout for the value of the burned material objects he was supposed to inherit. Huh. 
It's probably not much compared to the house and whatever Chuck had in the bank, but it's a lot more than five grand. Finally, there's a possibility of one more curveball here if Chuck's will is not the latest version. If a mystery envelope for Jimmy contains a codicil, meaning amendment, so long as it specifies a change to the will and is signed by Chuck, it's illegally valid. I suspect from a storytelling point of view that the mo- the show is moving on and not going to do that, but it is a possibility. What if it makes him give that 5000 back? <laughs> well, I'm going the other way, like... That's the ultimate fuck you. The real curveball would be if this is some material change to Jimmy that, like, gives him a much bigger portion of the property because he felt bad after the years of mistreating him. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, I don't, I keep on thinking, like, what becomes of this letter? You know, it's, it's obviously not going anywhere. It's in that little milk crate box. Is it? It's not interesting if Chuck opens it, or if Jimmy opens. It'd be super interesting if Chuck opened it. Uh, <laughs> it's not interesting if Jimmy opens it. and It's just Chuck saying, "Neener, neener, yeah, you yeah. suck, you, 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 you're a fuck up, and I hate you." Like we got to see him do that live and in color for three seasons. Mm-hmm. So, what is the interesting thing? Like if Kim gives it to him or not? Why? Like I. To me, the, there, there, it's either got to be this like, codicil that he's talking about, or it's 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 the way you know that Kim is done with Jimmy because she brings out the dagger and puts it right in his chest, and there's no coming back from that. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's a good question. I mean, I I don't think, man. I wish I knew like the status of his relationship with HHM legally, and maybe Doug can clue us in on that. I I think it's over and done with when Howard hands him that $8 million check. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think anything was signed. I yeah. don't know if he deposited the check. I, it, like, and, and it seems like the show is is not addressing that. So I think you're supposed to think that everything like that, that money just went into Chuck's estate. That's now becoming the endowment or whatever. Or, or could some of it, you know, go to Jimmy? Could some shares of, of HHM, like, could he want Jimmy under Howard's supervision somehow, right? Right. Because right. that's that's who I think of Chuck as being before this whole thing. The guy who was worried about his younger brother being slipping Jimmy, being the chimp with the machine gun, mm-hmm. uh, didn't necessarily want to see him destitute and failed, mm-hmm. but also wanted him, like, very much under the thumb of somebody. Right. And maybe he could get him into HHM in some limited capacity with Howard over him. I don't know. It depends right. on what the status of his his shares of HHM are, right? Or if, or if that's how it even works in the private, like completely private company. Um. So we have one final piece of feedback, but it is not exactly a spoiler, but it is a statement made at a, an, an interview uh, from an executive producer talking kind of outside of school about sp- per, per, maybe private speculation about. Sp- stuff in the show this is so i call it a spoiler because it's something that's not coming from with the show itself it's a meta thing so right. some if, if it turns out to be true maybe it disappoint people maybe not i just want to give people fair warning to shut it off because we're about to discuss it I, uh so kevin ryle sent us in our first ever twitch feedback uh when we were playing video games last week he said he relayed the fact that bob odenkirk was in an interview where he says the gene scenes in the beginning of every season of uh, Better Call Saul happens approximately a month before the Breaking Bad finale. He also followed up and said that's something that they discussed in the official podcast. I'm not sure if you went back and listened to the one from last week, but no, I didn't. That kind of blows. I mean, that kind of blows my mind because I always took it for granted that the Gene stuff was happening 
after the Breaking Bad finale, but I don't know why I thought that because we know that Saul it's took a big the bus gap. out. Yeah, yeah. Saul fucked off to New Mexico. What six months before? Before oh, Walt? Uh, was a whole year. The, uh, I, I don't know, but the stuff with Walt happens over a very long yeah, period of time. Yeah, the stuff where he goes so, off into yeah. the mountains and does his chemo and, <laughs> and hugs his barrel of cash through the long tea time of his soul. I, I So that opens the door for Walt to be in like flesh and blood post-gangster Walter White in the, in the Better Call Saul universe. Is that an interesting possibility? I mean, why else would they cl- I mean, only, he clarify that? Yeah, only in what it might mean to Saul. Like, I'm not interested in having Brian Cranston back just for its sake. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that going to do to Saul? How is how how is Gene going to react to that? I think it'd be interesting to see Gene help Walt architect the kind of trust that he outlined to Gretchen and uh, Elliot for his children. Like like if if like Gene gave him free legal advice about how to convey this money and go and send it through to Schwartz's and like like his last kind of altruistic thing as a lawyer, I, I don't see that being a thing that draws Gene out of hiding. I'm not saying he draws out of hiding. I'm saying Walt finds him, he tracks him down and finds him somehow. But we don't ever see that happen. Yeah, we don't see that. But we don't see a lot of things that, that that Walt does in those final moments. We don't see him meet with uh Skinny P and Badger to have them do the laser assassin thing. We just see the aftermath of it, right? So like I thought I he, was was he not in the car with them? I mean, we saw after the fact, but I'm saying that like it's okay. not like we get okay. to see every single thing that Walt does in the, that final, I guess, month of Breaking Bad. That's true. Yeah, when he's touring the country as Right. As, like at know, some point he buys a machine jacket. gun. Yeah. At some point he has a sad breakfast for himself at a Denny's. But there's a lot of stuff in between That's where true. he there's was clearly, clearly hatching plans. I I don't. Th- th- here's the thing. I don't know why Bob Odenkirk would say this. Like, if you don't establish it on the show, and this is something that you're like planning long term, like who, why, why, why say this? Why? Uh, yeah, I thought. I don't know. I thought it had been brought up as like a. Uh, it's such a weird thing when an actor tries to speculate because, mm-hmm. and he's not just seen... an actor. Like I said, he's an executive producer on the show, right? Like if anyone's going to be involved true. in the planning and plotting, it'd probably be him yeah. uh, above any other actor for sure. I don't know. I mean, I just don't. I don't know how that meaningfully affects the character of Jimmy Gene Saul uh-huh. in the end. Like yeah. that, he helps Walt with this thing he's doing. I, I feel like he might see the aftermath of Walt and Walt's yeah. death and. Maybe have some remorse over all the things that happened, but like, how does that push Gene along uh-huh. in an interesting way emotionally? Right. I just don't see it being a thing. Right. Uh. Well, that's that's all the feedback we got, uh, including the spoiler stuff. Uh. Again, if you want to send us more, do so at bettercastall at baldmove dot com. Of course, we also have a weekly thread on the forums if you just want to discuss something. You know, in a, in a more immediate sense. And also, don't forget that we have, if you're a club member, uh, we have the Instant Talk podcast, where after the episode airs, we get on, uh, if you, can, you can get on baldmove.com and watch us record our live instant take and also participate, again, if you're a club member. Uh, so check that out. Uh, what else? I mean, what, what, what else are you doing on a, on a Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard? Watching Lodge 49. 
There you go. That's the perfect answer. That's the perfect answer. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet, but apparently some people like it. I don't know. Yeah. Are there more people watching? Uh, this is this is a uh, this is an unwarranted shot on AMC's ratings. But are there oh, more no. people listening to our live instant talk than watching Lodge Fifty One or whatever it is? I Have you seen Lodge Forty Nine? I haven't. I no. have not either. I haven't. I, I don't know if it's getting good buzz or not because my Mondays are filled with Better Call Saul, and that's good enough for me. Anyway, uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. Later.